When your interlocutor, your fellow human, is the enemy, you're not going to have a rational conversation. That's why I go back to my founding assumption, which is if, if you and I have each other's best interests at heart, we can figure it out. We can, or we can agree to disagree, and, that, and that's fine too. Maybe we can even do it in an amicable sort of way. Today on Key People, I sit down with Davis Houck, an author and professor at Florida State University with a passion for rhetoric and how it shaped everything from the civil rights movement to our current political climate. Davis is one of the top minds on the Emmett Till case and how we're still learning about its implications today. We are here today with Davis Houck, who's a professor at Florida State University in the School of Communications here. So I kind of want to start off, give us a little bit about your background, um, how you got here. Uh, I actually uh, you took your speech course uh, when right. I was an undergrad. I remember going in at first, I was like, oh, you know, this seems like pretty typical, but it ended up being a lot more uh, thought-provoking than I uh, originally thought. And so how did you get in the the world of communications? Yeah, I started as a uh, freshman at the College of Worcester in Worcester, Ohio. I grew up in Mansfield, Ohio, and Worcester's just down the road. And I went to Worcester kind of on a golf scholarship. I was going to be a golfer. Turns out somebody else had other plans for me, but that was fine. I um, I got to know my freshman year uh, a professor in the speech communication field at Worcester. His name was Amos Kive. He was Israeli. He had done his PhD at Ohio University. And I had a class with him in persuasion that first year. And uh, kind of a long story short, he uh, became a mentor and a friend to me. And to this day, we're, we're close. He teaches up at Syracuse University. But he was one of the very first people in my life who saw some academic potential in me. And so I switched my major at Worcester from economics or business to communication, did my master's degree at the University of California at Davis, and then came back and did my PhD at Penn State University and graduated there in 1995. My first job out of graduate school was at Florida Atlantic University in Boca Raton. And it was a great first job, but South Florida was not necessarily my Midwestern sensibilities. It was, it was like I said, a great first job, but this job opened up at Florida State in 2000, or actually 1999. And I applied and I came up and interviewed and really kind of fell in love with the community, fell in love with the university. And uh, it was much more in keeping with my Midwestern sensibilities in terms of space, in terms of people. And even though I matriculated at a very small liberal arts college, as you know, having been a student here, FSU is a big school, but it has kind of a little school vibe to it. And in the School of Communication here where I teach, uh, we're a fairly small major. And so you can actually get to know your professors and thus you and I getting together today. Tell us a little bit about kind of what is your specialty um, within the field of communications. I know there's um, the course I took, there was a, an emphasis on persuasion and rhetoric, um, which are potentially kind of esoteric terms if you're not in the business. So in, in yeah. I guess, a little more accessible terms, what do you see those as? Well, my field began in the early 20th century as a public speaking field. And so if you were a teacher at Florida State University way, way back when, uh, there would be a heavy emphasis on public speaking and there would be a heavy emphasis on persuasion within public speaking. Well, we quickly realized as a field that's not going to give us a lot of street cred in the humanities, teaching public speaking to lots of freshmen. And so slowly over time, we developed as a field, as a group that studied kind of the great speeches. And typically these were political speeches. They were civic speeches. So you studied Lincoln or you studied Washington or you studied Woodrow Wilson or you studied FDR. And in my case, I cut my teeth as a traditional rhetorical critic. And what that means is I studied the great speeches, usually of presidents. And I kind of got hooked on FDR as a doctoral student at Penn State because of how he led the country through the Great Depression, how he led the country through several different crises. And he did it largely through radio. He did it through his voice. A lot of people don't know to this day that he couldn't walk unaided. He, was, uh, he had been afflicted with polio. But here's this guy who's got this rich voice and a new medium called radio. And so I was fascinated in trying to look very carefully at how he did what he did as a speaker. And so for the first several years of my career, I was teaching political communication. And political communication also includes things like political advertising. Um, it's not just speech making. There's tremendous, and, and, the, and the field has just grown with the new technologies and social media. Now our president tweets to us. So we have, we have lots of different ways to do political communication these days, not just TV and radio. 
Um, in about the mid-2000s, I got really, really interested in the civil rights movement. Part of that was a function of being down here, being in the Deep South where the movement really took hold. And so my, my career kind of vectored a little bit away from presidential rhetoric and over towards civil rights rhetoric. And in that way, I slowly came to the study of Emmett Till. Uh, I, I studied the Mississippi civil rights movement pretty carefully. So that's, um, that's a very kind of quick summary of how I got where I am presently. And that is something I want to talk a little bit more about because I know you've done some writing, or quite a bit of writing on the uh, civil rights uh, movement and, and obviously the role of rhetoric in that. Before we dive into that, a little more kind of generally in the areas of good communication and if there is such a thing, bad communication. I feel like good is what makes, essentially what makes a speech or a method of persuasion rhetoric good and what, and what makes it bad. And, and I guess, you know, Good and bad typically have a, a strong ethical component to them. So, for example, my world comes out of uh, an ethical treatment that treats evidence as factually based, stuff you can verify, claims, grounds, and evidence. So claims that are warranted based on solid evidence, which leads to a logical conclusion. So we, I mean, we share a lot with philosophy and informal logic. And uh, there's also a very strong tradition in communication of debate and argumentation. So when you use the terms good and bad in the context of communication, my mind goes right to ethics and how we do good communication in terms of what is verifiable, what is a tenable claim, what looks like good evidence, what leads to a logical conclusion, those sorts of things. And obviously people's political bent can affect their interpretation of what they Always. perceive <laughs> Always. Yeah, right and wrong to be. But let's Let's kind of imagine a scenario here. It's like you have President Trump, who's obviously, uh, for better or for worse, uh, depending on your perspective, uh, evolved the nature of what we think of when we think of communication in the modern world um, and, and the role of a president. Then you have sort of FDR, who, again, depending on your interpretation, if you agree with a lot of, there's a lot of progressive policies that came out of that in the early 20th century. And there, there's people on every side of the political spectrum as well as uh, uh, potentially on different sides of the ethical spectrum, are going to use persuasion mm -hmm. to suit their agenda. Right. And assuming you're on the, you know, if you're not on the mm -hmm. agreeing side of that agenda, that could be an issue. Mm -hmm. So the question is essentially, is there an irresponsible way to persuade and communicate? Because obviously if you disagree with Donald Trump on a lot of things, then, you know, he's certainly used communication to achieve things you would not agree with. And potentially if you uh, disagreed with FDR on things, you know, there were some controversial things, packing the courts, things like that, and a lot of executive action in the early 20th century. I mean, you could view that as a negative. So how can that communication be misused? Well, right. So it's a, it's a big question. We see it today in the Trump administration with the sort of the proliferation of fact check claims whether it's the Washington Post doing it, whether it's Snopes, whether it's PolitiFact, who, and the journalists are leading on this because the journalists have to follow the president. And the journalism standard is you, you tell all sides of the story. Well, in telling all sides of the story, are you giving this guy a platform to spread a bunch of disinformation? And in fact, that seems to be the case. That's not me talking. That's the Washington Post fact checkers talking. So when, you're over, when, when you get in front of a, a large group of people and you repeatedly lie or use a, perhaps a statistic to to mislead. Part of what we do as a representative democracy, a, represent, a Republican form of government is, is that, you know, that, that vital first amendment of putting a, putting a check on that sort of power because speech is power and speech in Twitter is especially powerful when you have 63 million followers or however many it is. But for me, Bryant, what, what I want to do when I'm meeting interpersonally with somebody who politically we are different is I want to know why we're different. We're, in other words, where do we disagree? So if we're having an argument perhaps about subsidies, agriculture subsidy. I want to ask questions about where's the nub of our disagreement. It's not that we just, you, you, you want to do X and I want to do Y. I want to work backwards from your X and my Y to kind of get down to see where do we, where do we fundamentally disagree? And usually that gets to some piece of evidence. Some piece of evidence is in dispute. And so my assumption is you're a rational guy. I'm a rational guy. We have both, we have, we have each other's best interests at heart. Now that's an assumption, but if we do, we can go, I think, find that piece of information, that piece of data, whatever it is, and come to an agreement and hopefully move from that agreement to a policy position that we can agree on. That's going to take some time and we're going to have to talk to each other about it. We're not going to do it on Facebook. We're not going to do it on Twitter. It's going to be me and you looking for some things together, trying to lead each other in the right direction. So given that this kind of information spreads so quickly these days because of things 
the platforms yeah, you just mentioned. the world quickly. Yep. How, you know, obviously the in-person is still the ultimate, but, you know, how have you seen this field evolve and how can people more effectively communicate given that the incendiary nature of the modern political climate is, causes you know, wedges to be driven where you're sort of saying, where's the common ground? It's awfully hard to find that when you've already been convinced this person is your enemy. Right. No, you're, when the, when your interlocutor, your fellow human is the enemy, you're not going to have a rational conversation. That's why I go back to my founding assumption, which is if, if you and I have each other's best interests at heart, we can figure it out. We can, or we can agree to disagree. And that, and that's fine too. Maybe we can even do it in an amicable sort of way. I think what's the problem with the social media that we have right now is uh, right away we're sort of put into tribes by virtue on who's on your friends list and who do I follow. We tend to follow people we agree with. And so we can get into echo chambers really quickly. And then those echo, echo chambers get, they ricochet around because I forward something, I, I respond to something. And before you know it, you're just getting access to one piece of information. Uh, one side of the story. And my discipline's founding premise comes out of ancient Greece and the sophist, which is, it's a Protagoras, the great sophist, famously said on any given issue, there are at least two sides that oppose each other. And I always try to keep that sensibility in whatever I'm doing, whether I'm in the classroom, whether I'm writing, it's okay, this is, this, this is my point of view on this perhaps, but it's not the only one. And I have to be very cognizant of that. And that's hard. So obviously, you know, in the academic world, there are a lot of um, influences from ancient Greece, uh, and a number of these ancient societies that, that have informed the field of human communication. Yep. And most of them, by and large, are so fundamental in nature that they are you know, continually proven right through the years. But are there any that have historically been considered fundamentally true that you think have maybe kind of broken more recently because of where we're at as a size? Or anything that was like, we always thought it was one way? But now... So there's a strain of scholarship and rhetorical studies, presidential rhetoric, okay? And we like to study these things called presidential genres of speech. State of the Union address, inaugural address, farewell address, certain sorts of policy speeches, certain sorts of speeches of celebration, speeches of mourning, uh, speeches of blame, speeches of praise. What Donald Trump has effectively done, I would argue, is to blow up all those genres because his mode of governing is really not to govern at all, but really to kind of throw wrenches into things. And, and one of the biggest things he's thrown a wrench into is presidential rhetoric. He doesn't abide by standard uh, genres of rhetoric, what I would call rhetorical governance. That's not his thing. Uh, he likes to do things by the seat of his pants. Uh, he might have three advisors telling him to do one thing like in Helsinki, and he does something else. So he's really not... Past presidents have always been bound by these genres. They're kind of stable, fixed things. You do, you do and you say these sorts of things in this particular occasion, and he doesn't. So there's obviously um, probably some parallels in the classic civil rights space and, and, and some of the things going on today. Um, before we dive too into that, I know you said you more recently in the past... I guess, decade or so, became uh, uh, more interested in the civil rights movement and obviously its role in communication. Can you talk a little bit about that, what your interest is in that, and, and how it, it led to your, I think, a little more specific focus on the Emmett Till story? Sure. So when I talked about great speeches, well, you got a bunch of great speakers in the civil rights movement, starting with Dr. King and working out from there. And so I was asked back in 2005 uh, by a good friend and colleague at Baylor University to put together a book of speeches that were great speeches, but that nobody had ever heard of. <laughs> and so this is a little bit of a challenge. And But it was a great challenge because that sent me and my co-editor to archives all over the country to try to track down who these people were, what did they say, and the theme was religion. Because what we know from the civil rights movement is one of the things that made the movement move, really move, was religion, and Judeo-Christian religion in particular. And so we were looking for these speakers and speeches all around the country and we ended up coming up with a uh, about a 1,500-page manuscript, which in the academic world is nuts. An editor is going to say to you, cut that in one-fifth and then submit it. But we had a really intrepid editor at Baylor who said, when I asked him how much we should send, he said, send it all. And I kind of giggled thinking, okay, you have no idea. And he said, no, no, send it all. And so we did, and they published to their credit this 1,000-page book that has speeches from 1954, the typical start of the movement, we can talk about that later too, uh, to the quote-unquote end of the movement, 1965. And we got it just packed with these great speeches and speakers that largely nobody's ever heard of. Women, 
men, Southerners, Northerners, Westerners, we have one speech by Dr. King because you can't have this book without one speech by Dr. King. To your second question, uh, one of the things that rhetorical critics began studying in, in the 50s and 60s and then into the 70s was how the media reported things. Because we know that media has a bias too. Language is inherently biased. My first project, one of my very first projects on the civil rights movement was I got interested in the Emmett Till story and how it was reported because the press latched onto that story. And some would argue it's the first major national news story of the civil rights movement. And I got interested in kind of a smaller question of that, which is this one. I wonder how white Mississippians understood that case. How was that case reported? Because that's where it happened in Mississippi. How was that case reported and talked about and edi editorialized in the state that was had the reputation of being the worst of the worst in terms of segregation, in terms of Jim Crow, in terms of lynching history? And so fortunately in Jackson, there's a great archive there called the Mississippi Department of Archives and History. And one of their great collections is all these newspapers. And so I was able to kind of go in their microfilm collection and find every single newspaper that was publishing in August, September, October, 1955 and pulled their articles on Emmett Till. And that was the, um, that was the basis for my first book on the Till case called uh, Emmett Till in the Mississippi Press. And obviously there, as you just referenced, there are, can be and are entire books written about this. And, and we can uh, jump into a little bit why it's considered kind of a historically significant um, case. But can you kind of give us just the the summary of, of what is the Emmett Till case, what happened. Sure. Emmett Till was a 14-year-old black teenager. Uh, he was 14, from Chicago. In August of 1955, he travels with his cousins, two, uh, one cousin and his great uncle, to Money, Mississippi, which is in the Mississippi Delta, which is the cotton uh, kingdom in the United States. And Emmett's mom, her name was Mamie Till, and she was really ambivalent about Emmett going because she was born in Mississippi, had lots of kin in Mississippi, and knew it was the worst of the worst for a young black boy. And so she did her best to kind of train Emmett on, you know, you got to get off the sidewalk. You can't look a white woman in the eyes. You, you can't be who you are in Chicago. So Emmett travels down by train on August 20th. On August 24th, he and a bunch of cousins and neighbor friends drive three miles up the road to this tiny little community. It's called Money, and there's just a couple of stores in Money. And there's a grocery store, the Bryant Grocery and Meat Market. And this is Wednesday evening. And we're not sure exactly what happened in the store, but Emmett went into the store uh, to buy some candy. Uh, something happened between he and Carolyn Bryant. Uh, we don't know if it was just some cute talk, some brief flirtation. Did he touch her hand? We don't know. And anybody who tells you that they do know exactly what happened is probably fibbing. We don't know for sure. But we know something happened to kind of make Carolyn Bryant angry. And one of the things that really stoked her anger was when Emmett left the store, he looked back in with all of his cousins watching because he was kind of a show-off and he wolf-whistled at her loudly. And his cousins knew immediately, uh-oh, he just hit the tripwire of really, really difficult race relations in the Deep South, which is interracial sex. You cannot, as a young black boy, flirt with a white... Forget it. No, no, especially not in public like this. And so they jump in their car as fast as they can, and they tear off home, and they're kind of traumatized by this because of what Emmett had done. Emmett's just kind of getting a kick out of this because he's a jokester, and it's kind of funny to him. Well, that was Wednesday night. Thursday comes and goes. Friday comes and goes. Saturday comes and goes, and his cousins think that maybe this is blown over. Well, Sunday morning at about two in the morning, several people show up at Moses and Elizabeth Wright's house outside of money. Two men come into the house, Roy Bryant and his half-brother, J.W. Milam. Uh, Roy Bryant's wife, Carolyn, is the one that Emmett whistled at. They take Emmett out of the house at gunpoint, and they put him in a, tr in a truck or a car, we're not sure which, and they drive off towards money. And J.W. Milam threatens Moses Wright as they leave. He says, basically, uh, preacher, how old are you? And Moses Wright said, I'm 64. And Milam says, well, if you tell anybody about this, you won't live to see 65. And so right away, there's this threat. Three days later, Emmett's body, badly tortured, mutilated body, is found floating in the Tallahatchie River. This is August 31st. Uh, the two men had been arrested already on kidnapping charges. And in the second week of September, a grand jury convenes, issue a true bill on murder against Milam and Bryant. A trial is held two weeks later, starting on September 19th. The two men are very, very quickly acquitted during a five-day trial, which was kind of a farce. 
Emmett Till never got justice. Later, uh, in January, the two men sold their story to William Bradford Huey, a journalist, under the guise of a confession. We know now it wasn't a confession. There's just a bunch of lies in there, but it looks like a confession. That confession functioned as the true story for over 50 years until other people came on the scene. But Emmett Till's story largely died in 1955 and 56 and was, we can talk about how it was resuscitated later, but for about 30 years, it lay pretty dormant, especially among white, Amer white Americans didn't know it. Black Americans tended to because the black press had a very, very important role to play in the case, but white America did not know the name Emmett Till uh, until the late eighties at the very earliest. What was the, their version of the truth in a nutshell? Milam and Bryant basically said that when they kidnapped Emmett Till, they were just going to take him out and whip him. And instead, what happened was Emmett didn't back down to these two guys. In fact, he started bragging about the white women he'd been with. And in other words, he was this fearless 14-year-old black kid in the middle of the night talking back to Milam and Bryant, who both were armed, which is, the whole thing is absurd. But this is the story they're concocting. And so Milam, at one point in the Huey article, says... You know, I didn't, I, I wasn't going to kill this kid, but when he started talking about sex with a white woman, he was tired of living and he was not going to see the sun come up tomorrow. And so he has him on the riverbank and he shoots him in the head and they tie a cotton gin fan barbed wire to his neck to sink him and into the Tallahatchie River he goes. So that's their version of the story. As I recall, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, at the funeral, uh, Emmett Till's mother requests an open casket um, and at this point, his body's obviously, you know, mutilated. And I mean, I don't know if she had said or if there's speculation, what is her thought process? Well, originally Emmett's body, because it was in such terrible shape when they pulled it out of the river, the family planned to bury him in Money, Mississippi, right down the street from where they lived. They had even dug a hole. They were going to have a church service that day. And Mamie Till up in Chicago got word of this plan and said, absolutely not. He has to come home to Chicago. I want to bury him here. He cannot be buried in Mississippi. No way. And so through the help of a family friend, his name is Crosby Smith, who plays a really important role in this case, the body is loaded into a big box, a, ca a casket, put on a train, and off to Chicago it goes. I believe the train arrives back in Chicago on the 1st or the 2nd of September. And people knew the body was back because you could smell it. It was so decomposed and rotting that it gave off this awful, awful smell. Mississippi did not want Mamie Till to see that body. The, they had, everybody had basically said, this has to stay shut. You cannot open this box. And Mamie Till said to the, the, the funeral director, she said, um, you might not open it, but bring me a hammer because I'm, I'm going to open it and I want to see what's in that box. I, I got to see, this is my only child. I want to I see what's in that box. And so they prepped the body as best they could, put it on a slab in the morgue. She documents in a couple of different uh, films. I'd recommend strongly Keith Beauchamp's The Untold Story of Emmett Lewis Till. She starts at Emmett's feet. And as she said, I gathered strength as I went just to try to um, identify what this thing was in front of me because it looked nothing like my child. It was swollen. The face was unrecognizable. Uh, the teeth had been knocked out. If you've seen, if you've seen the pictures, it's, it, it just looks like a lump of flesh. It's not recognizable as a human. And I think at this point, she, two things happened to Mamie Till. One, she was obviously horrifically sad. Um, maybe more importantly, she got mad. And her words were, bring in the photographers. I can't tell the world what happened to my son. This has to be documented. I want the world to see what Mississippi did to my son. And so they took these, Jet Magazine was there, but there were other photographers there too. They took, they took these images of this horribly mutilated face. Into Jet Magazine it goes, and into most of the black newspapers in the country. The Chicago Defender was, a, was also a big one. Emmett's kind of hometown paper. And black America saw the image. White America didn't. Until recently, I, w I was surprised the other day, ABC News actually showed the image on, on its nightly news. But white America, for the longest time, had never seen this picture. Whereas young black men and women grew up with it. Jet Magazine from 1955, September. Uh, that almost became a Bible for a lot of households, just to kind of serve as a warning to kids from their parents. It seems that, and I'm sure this has been discussed and perhaps at length, um, this is just me rehearing the details of this now, she had an awful lot of understanding 
and foresight with respect to the role in swaying public perception uh, that media could play, even this is decades ago. Yes, she was very, very savvy about how the media could help her tell the story. I mean, if she was sitting here with us today, I don't know that she would say, yeah, Bryant, of course I knew that this was going to become a media sensation and I was playing the right keys all the way around. I don't think she would say that. But she did know that television was brand new. You know, nightly news was brand new in particular. And when the trial was held, all these cameras come to this tiny little community of Sumner, Mississippi, and Tallahatchie County. So the world comes to this tiny little Mississippi town to, to, to take moving images of the trial. And it, it arguably becomes the first big media event of what, what would become the civil rights movement. Did she know this was coming? I don't think so. But she also knew the press could be on her side. So one of the very first things she does when Emmett goes missing is she calls some friends and the friends put her in touch with reporters at the Chicago Defender. So the story begins to grow at this point. But you're right, she is not going to suffer in silence. So it's obviously a very, needless to say, heinous uh, crime. It has a very tactile and tangible component with the media that came out of it. But it's certainly not the only heinous crime from the civil rights time. Why has this one, and this is not to belittle the importance of any of them, but this one has certainly had some staying power. And why, you know, why is that? It's a good question. Uh, And I'll give you some possible answers. Number one, it was a 14 year old child. And so we see this now when, whenever something awful is visited upon a child, we tend to react and we tend to react loudly and viscerally when it's a child. Also Emmett Till and his family never got justice. There was a sham of a trial and Steve Whitaker, who I want to put a plug in for, Steve was a master's student here at Florida State in the early 60s. He was from Tallahatchie County, and he wrote a master's thesis on the case. It was kind of the first scholarship on the Till case was his master's thesis right here at FSU. It's online. Uh, Steve went and interviewed all the jurors, all 12 men. And to a person, uh, they told him the same story, which is, well, of course we knew they were guilty. We all knew that. But we could not convict a white man of these crimes against a, a black child. We couldn't. It wasn't part of the code. We weren't going to do it. Which strikes us today as seriously, you know, that ludicrous by today's standard. I mean, but ludicrous. Yeah, no, it's uh, it, it's a travesty of justice. And so it's it's you know when we talk about Black Lives Matter and 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 cops shooting black men, unarmed black men, it's easy to bring Emmett Till into that because he's kind of the archetype for justice uh, denied uh, over the course of 60 plus years. So you said the story lay dormant uh, for a number of years. You know, what what brought it back? When did that kind of occur and why? Yeah, and I should qualify this by saying it it came to white America's attention because black America knew Emmett Till. They might have not known all the particulars, but they knew the name. Right, sure. A couple of things happened in the late 80s. At the 30-year anniversary of the Till murder, 1985, There's a local documentary in Chicago put together by a guy named Rich Samuels. This is just Chicago because Chicago is Till's home. But a a bigger event happens in 1987 with the PBS broadcasting Eyes on the Prize, which has become sort of the, the, the gold standard of civil rights documentary film, and it still is. It's this incredibly ambitious project that Henry Hampton at Blackside Films put together. And that film uh, starts... It starts a little bit with the Brown versus Board of Education school case in 54, just a couple of minutes, and then it goes right to the Emmett Till case. Because Henry Hampton grew up with that case. And for him, it was sort of the the foundation stone in his civil rights life, uh, the story of Emmett Till. And so he wanted to start Eyes on the Prize with Emmett Till, and he does. And it's told in a very powerful way with lots of archival footage. And so for the first time, a lot of white America in 1987 is learning about Emmett Till. In 1988, you have the publication by Steve Whitaker of the first kind of scholarly treatment of the case. It's called uh, A Death in the Delta. And then in the 90s, things begin to, uh, there's more scholarship. And here come the filmmakers in the early 2000s, Keith Beauchamp in particular, who uh, his work was so good and so compelling that he convinced the Department of Justice working with the FBI to reopen the case in 2004. And so here's where an activist scholar's work on the ground, interviewing people, looking at microfilm documents, finding all that he could convinces law enforcement to reopen the case. And so in 2004, 
and when these two documentaries, uh, a PBS documentary by Stanley Nelson and Keith's work come out, then the case really becomes national again in scope because we're talking about it on the nightly news. You've studied this case pretty extensively and obviously probably have a lot of thoughts on it. For you, you know, beyond the things that have already been discussed, what is it that keeps drawing you in, drawing your interest? I mean, we're, we're literally sitting here. It's probably worth noting. It's, we didn't plan on it, but it's July 25th, and we are doing this on Emmett Till's birthday. Yeah, he'd be 77 today. Wow. There's a number of um, you know, books and, and things on the walls that are uh, Emmett Till related, including the film you mentioned a few minutes ago. Yeah. Why is this a special case for you? Well, once you go to Mississippi and you see the places, you see the store, what's left of the store, you see where Moses Wright preached, you see the ground upon which Emmett was taken, you go to the bridge in Black Bayou in Glendora, Mississippi, where we're pretty sure Emmett's body was thrown in, and then you go just a few miles uh, west of Drew, Mississippi, and you visit the shed. It's on private property. Uh, you visit the shed where Emmett was beaten and most likely murdered. And that sort of proximity to the history changes you, can't help but change you. That's why I like to take my students there. It's one thing to read about Emmett Till in a book. It's one thing to see the images on a film. It's another thing to walk in the footsteps and to see the actual places where this story unfolded and the courtroom that was just redone. So it looks like 1955 in Sumner. Mississippi, to its credit, has done an amazing job commemorating Emmett Till and what happened there and their complicity in the injustice that happened. It's easy to forget sometimes on a daily basis for me as a privileged white American. It's easy to forget the suffering that Emmett Till went through. In other words, he's he can easily become an object of discourse instead of a subject, a 14-year-old kid from Chicago who was brutally murdered and lived the last hours of his life in great fear and pain. And so I try to remember that. And it's easy, again, because you're, you're talking about him kind of in the abstract. And so I kind of check myself and being able to go to Mississippi and make friends on the ground and, and see some of the places where all this unfolded is powerful and important. You mentioned that Emmett Till, again, for better or worse, has been... The story has drawn parallels given political events of the past, call it five years, I mean, arguably longer, but at least that. We've talked a little bit about the why. Do you think there has, without getting too heavy into critique, I guess, or, or maybe, you know, certainly there are appropriate parallels that are drawn and there's probably some that are less appropriate. I mean, what do you think is the most authentic but appropriate uh, way to learn from the story without diminishing its importance as well as the intrinsically personal nature of it? Is it when I bring it into my classroom, I want my students to be able to understand the nuances of the case, the nuances of the history. And instead of Emmett Till becoming this kind of signifier for injustice against a young black boy, which bleeds over into today, I want my students to be able to say that they've kind of wrestled with the primary documents. In this case, that would be newspapers, but the, the court, the trial transcript. Um, and if we can go to Mississippi, we're going to go to Mississippi, which we did last year. So that I, I want nuance. I want understanding. I want, before you, before you become outraged about this awful thing that happened to Emmett Till, I want you to be able to kind of tell them, walk me through the story, what happened. Let's get the history right first. We can do outrage later. We can always do outrage later. Let's get the particulars right first. And what's interesting, Brian, is we're still getting the particulars today, 63 years later. And you say, well, what do you mean? Don't, don't we know exact? No, we actually don't. And one of the projects I'm, I'm helping a fellow with right now is the man who was the chief FBI investigator of the case. He isn't, he's just retired from the FBI and he's just started a book on the case from his point of view as the lead investigator. And so we're going to learn a whole bunch of new things through him going back and interviewing all these people, going through the documents, going through the transcripts, wearing a wire, talking to people secretly. So we're still learning. It's, it's the, you kind of wonder, when, when will we know everything about this case? I don't know that that ever is going to happen. Well, certainly, and it's funny you say that because I was literally going to say, well, what new information is there? How much more can one learn? But, you know, there, that is a perfect example. Well, in the in the the media kerfuffle two weeks ago, where Emmett Till suddenly was on, you know, the nightly news, and everybody was talking about Emmett Till just a couple of days ago, uh, that was because somebody claimed that the Department of Justice had reopened the case 
And wow, did the media pounce on that story. The media loved to pounce on the Till story, and they pounced on that story. And a lot of us who study the case and have for a long time kind of looked at each other and scratched our heads and smiled between media interviews and said, guys, the Department of Justice has been looking at this for quite a while. This is not some reporter, intrepid reporter, dug it up that there's some activity on the case. Well, there's been a good bit of activity for quite a while now. The bigger question for me is, well, what's going to happen? You know, is the DOJ going to prosecute? Is is there going to be a grand jury convened? I don't know. Milam and Bryant. Yeah. You know. They uh, have both died, if I'm not mistaken. Milam died in 1980 of... Uh, I think bone cancer, Greenville, Mississippi. He's buried in Greenville, Mississippi. Roy Bryant, his younger half-brother, when, the, when this all happened, Milam was 36, Bryant was 24. Bryant died uh, in 1994. Uh, he was in his early 60s. He's buried, it's interesting, he's buried in the cemetery in, just outside of Ruleville, Mississippi. And I've taken my students to his grave just because I, I find cemeteries kind of interesting and it's kind of on a main artery, and I say, hey, who wants to see Roy Bryant's, and everybody, let's go see it. So we, we went and saw it, and what I've noted through the years is somebody defaces his grave with blood all the time, as if a local is saying to anybody who goes up to that grave, we know who you are, we know what you did. Very interesting sort of very local act of resistance. Somebody kind of keeps watch over that grave. So the prosecution potential would basically be a technically symbolic and retroactive. There's one person only who's alive and prosecutable, and that's Carolyn Bryant. She's 84. She lives in North Carolina with her, I think, last remaining son. I talked to, she's inaccessible. I try. I reached out to the family several years ago because there was the rumor of a book manuscript floating around. And I did talk to her daughter-in-law for a half an hour. Very interesting conversation. But Bryant, she's the only one who the federal government would have because she's the only one left living. And she would be kind of an accessory to manslaughter, accessory to murder. Because ultimately she was the person who identified Emmett as, yeah, that was the kid who came in the store and whistled at me. Was there any dispute over the whistle itself? The whistle is largely undisputed. It's one of the very few things in the case that everybody who was there at the store said, oh, wow, he just wolf whistled at her unapologetically. The bigger controversy is what prompted him to go into the store. There's a, I think, a pretty compelling argument that says Emmett was bragging outside the store about girlfriends and maybe even white girlfriends. And somebody said, Bo, his nickname was Bo. Hey, Bo, there's a pretty white girl in that store. Why don't you go in and get a date with her? That's in dispute. I understand why the family has disputed that. We know that Carolyn Bryant lied on the witness stand when she testified at the trial. She, the, the jurors were not in the room when she testified, but she gave this pretty salacious account of what Emmett supposedly did. He put his hands on her. He used the F word. It was all but a rape. That's nonsense. Never happened. So here we are, 77th it's Emmett Till's. Yeah, so we are 60, 63 years in August. The climate we're in today involves an awful lot of interpretation of language, verbal and nonverbal. I imagine that as a student of rhetoric and language and messaging, beyond the obvious and and obviously important civil rights component to this case, there is probably a larger human communications case as it relates to the way we communicate, the way we communicate in a political context today. And we are in a time that is arguably more divisive than ever, or certainly very close to it. Where do you see some of the teachable moments from this case? Well, that's a good question, and I don't, I don't have any sort of grand answers to that hard question, Brian, but I'll, I'll tell you a story because it's, it's a fun story for me. I was in Mississippi in March, and I went to Money, where the store still is, and there's some commemorative work there. Well, there's a plantation right behind the store, and I've gotten to know that family. And, you know, white family of some means, I think. The daughter, who was roughly Emmett Till's age when it all happened, uh, still lives just right down the road in Greenwood. I had reached out to her because I wanted to meet her to get on her plantation. And she started asking me some questions about Emmett Till because she really didn't know particulars. And I I responded to her, and I, and I try to do this gently with white Mississippians when they ask, because they usually ask with good intentions. She asked me about what happened to Emmett the night he was kidnapped and killed. And so I, and what did he do to Carolyn Bryant? And so I, I told her as with as much nuance as I could, what we, what we think happened. And she kind of looked at me funny because when I told her that William Bradford Huey's story, the supposed confession story, 
That was all lies. You could kind of see her world falling apart because that was the story she grew up with. And many people, I mean, I'm not pointing a finger at her. It's just what people grew up with. And I said, no, um, we know that there were many men involved, not just two. Some of them were even black. There could have been up to a dozen or so. There were lots. And, you know, her eyes are just kind of as big as saucers. And I tried to kind of walk her through the evidence because I didn't want to just kind of tell her to believe me. It's like, no, let me kind of show you how we know that. And she listened. And what was the, the reason I'm telling the story is because so a couple of days later, so we, we meet out, out the plantation. I tell her the story. We have an opportunity to meet her two days later at a, at a local restaurant. And I happened to be, before, I, before she saw me, I happened to kind of be eavesdropping on a conversation because she was sitting close to me. And what brought a smile to my face is she was telling a neighbor of hers, older white man, the story that I had told her. And he was interested too. He said, how do you know that? And so this kind of warmed me, thinking that here's a white Mississippian who's invested in a particular telling of the story, telling a new version. And then she introduced me. And, and, and so this is how I think you, I anyway, kind of do these little micro stories of how things change in Mississippi. They change kind of a person at a time. And for most people, that's just too slow. And for me, it's like, hey, I'm a teacher. If I can change one person at a time, that's fine. We'll go slow. But I just want an audience. Let's you and me talk about it. And I want to learn about you growing up on this plantation in 1955 in Mississippi. You got stories to tell me. So it's a reciprocal thing. So it sounds like one of the things you would probably say if I said, you know, you're speaking to certainly, you know, white America, reciprocate, communicate, listen. You know, I mean, what what are what is kind of the unifying? And then, I mean, for me, so it's, it's, it's reciprocate, it's listen, it's be kind, it's... Under, try to understand where that person's world does not intersect with your world and why. And then, if possible, I'm a book guy. I'm a, I'm a scholarship guy. I'm an evidence guy. Do them the next favor, since you've made a new friend, gift them a book. And say, here, you know, so I, here's Devery Anderson's book, which is the best book out there on the Till case. I'm like, here, here's my gift to you. Read it. Enjoy it. And, and then give it to a friend. Pass it along. So it's small things, but significant things. What has been your, what was the, the most unexpected reaction you've ever had from interacting with someone or the biggest surprise or was there anything that really you're like, I can't believe you thought that or reacted this way? When I used to go to Mississippi in the early 2000s, people would, of course, because they're friendly there, they would ask me who I am and why I'm there because there's not a lot of tourism back in the day in Greenwood, Mississippi. And I would just kind of hide behind, well, I'm I'm just a tourist. I'm, I teach at Florida State University. And that, of course, would lead to a football question. And kind of, and it, it would allow me to kind of comfortably move away from the real reason I was there, which may have been to, to work, to do some research on the Till case. Because I knew it was still hotly contested and made a lot of white Mississippians very defensive and very angry. And slowly, when I, later 2000s, early 2010s, I decided kind of consciously one day, I said, you know, I'm not going to hide anymore. I'm just going to tell people why I'm here. And so... The question inevitably comes up, why are you here in LaFleur County or Tallahatchie County or what brings you here? I said, the Emmett Till case brings me here. I don't get any hostility. I mean, we might, they might kind of move away from the question pretty quickly. Does everyone essentially know what it is there? Yes, but they have a very different understanding. They have a version of it. They have a version. And it's often the wrong version because they grew up with the William Bradford Huey story. No, you know, that's, that's the story they know. I've never in Mississippi been confronted with heated anger or how dare you, or maybe the most is a raised eyebrow. But the Till story stays in the news in part because the signs that commemorate his life and death are often defaced, shot up, pulled over, obliterated, chemically rubbed, you name it. And really, even, even today, people that... Yeah. You know. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, a new sign was put in the ground. Um, because it had been shot up. So, I mean, are these white supremacists disputing? The, I mean, like who's at this point? We don't know. And, you know, a white Mississippian will often say, oh, that's, you know, this actually a woman told us this. It's like, those are just teenage boys shooting up signs. Maybe it was, or maybe it was something a little bit more sinister, right? That we don't want Emmett Till on our landscape, literally. And we're going to do everything we can to resist that. I, I totally understand that. I understand where that comes from because there's a lot of the Delta areas in particular, uh, Tallahatchie County, where you can't hardly move without stumbling across some Emmett Till signs, roads, courthouses. So I could see some people getting really defensive, especially if they didn't know their history and what was at stake. You usually talk about the story in, in classes. I know you did in the class I took. What is the reaction usually like amongst students? When you tell them about Emmett Till's story? Yeah. 
when you when you the way and, and particularly well, I, the I, version I, you tell, which is fairly I, historically uh, yeah, and I fair. Like to, I like to bring in pictures because I want I want them to see it. Yeah. I, I guess sort of two reactions: shock and anger. And but I start I start before I even you know go down the road. I ask who's heard the name Emmett Till, and then usually you know a large number of hands go up. Every is it sem- usually a majority? Yes, and in fact, every semester more hands go up. Interesting. Yeah, but there are still some classes where not a lot of hands go up. And then I will ask the follow-up question, which is, well, what do you know about it? Having a familiarity with a name doesn't mean you know anything. And there's usually, you know, this much understanding, just very little. Oh, he was the black kid who was, who was what happened to him in Mississippi? And, right. They know something bad happened to him. And so the, once you tell the story with the pictures, there's, there's shock, there's sadness, there's, and, and then there's usually anger. It's like, how, how could this happen, right? How could, how, could, how, could, how could a court not convict? How could, um, could anybody be so cruel? Which gets us... It's a big macro questions of Jim Crow and segregations and cotton picking. And if you want to keep moving back towards slavery and voting and it, it gets it, you can eventually get a lot of big civil rights issues on the table just with Emmett Till's story. So I, I use it for a lot of reasons. One to tell the, to the, the history, but let's talk about sharecropping. Let's talk about Moses Wright. Let's talk about the black church. Let's talk about plantation life. Let's talk about, which of course then gets us back to the civil war. And we can talk about the reconstruction amendments and the 1890 Mississippi constitution, which disenfranchises black men and women and or black men. And, and so it's, it's a history, if you know it well, that you can riff to tell a lot of other histories. And I think that's a good point. And I think a good way to distill some of the understanding from all of this is given that the reality that most Americans, you know, white or otherwise, aren't going to become associate professors on this and then these subjects, right? They obviously... Full professors. I'm just going to throw yes. that in there. Okay. Yes, of course. <laughs> uh, what do you think is the toolkit in terms of having an appreciation for this history and the way it shaped people's circumstances, privilege or lack thereof, um, really, you know, all of that, uh, you know, what do you think are, are, are kind of the most important things to keep in mind to say, you know, I, I can have an appreciation for this history um, without necessarily knowing every last detail, uh, because just all the topics you mentioned, obviously, it's each of those are their own full-length book, you know. So in today's you know fast-paced society, how does one who wants to be conscious of that? They're just going to have to slow down. Oh. Tough. I can't com- I can't compress this into a a sexy tweet for you. We're going to go slow, and we're going to go through the original documents, and the students love it. You know, once you show them how to do some things, this totally empowers them. And they become the experts. And then they tell their friends and they tell their roommates. And they become, right, the next generation of, they're not going to be academic historians like me, but that's fine. They're going to be smart, educated, savvy consumers of this story. And they're going to be the storytellers for their kids and perhaps their grandkids. And I, and I should mention the kind of my passion project at FSU right now is the, the Emmett Till archive we have, which is three or four years old now. And we are the only archive in the entire world that's dedicated exclusively to telling the Emmett Till story in all of its fullness. And I've been working with special collections at FSU for quite a while now. And we have a lot of documents available. Documents are being digitized every day. So we as an institution are getting to share this story with a worldwide audience. And that excites me because that's going to outlive me in spades. You're certainly... have have got to be, given that your involvement with that is the only one in the world, you've got to be one of the... A leading people on this particular case, at least in terms of time and inputs. I mean, what, so what do you hope is the the lasting takeaway? I mean, archive obviously is just a good tangible example of that. But you know. yeah, so it's it's to continue to tell the story, but maybe use the story in other contexts to tell other stories. Because again, I think it's a story that's rich enough and complex enough that you can tell a lot of other stories with it. It allows us as an institution to continue to build because people know who we are now and they link out to us and we've had people donating their papers to us. And so it's it's one of those situations where once you start it and it gets its own momentum and its own gravity, it's pulling people and ideas and other things in and attracting funds and attracting more research and attracting scholars and attracting family members. And so we've had a great reaction. Our colleagues and friends over at FAMU have been using it. People in our community are using it. So I see it. As, I mean, it's, it's amazing to think Emmett's 77 today. Emmett would be 77 today. And he continues to influence people on a daily basis, even though he's 
not been here for 63 years. And I look at the friends and the students and the colleagues that I've been able to tell this story and share this with. And you think it all goes back to a whistle on a Wednesday night in Money, Mississippi on August 24th. And without that kind of single facile act of teenage, whatever you want to call it, uh, teenage amusement, we're not having this conversation. We're not having this archive. We're not having this civil rights thing that happened after it. So it gives you a lot of pause to kind of think about how, how the world could be different if that, if that one thing didn't happen that Wednesday night. Was there a forthcoming book or work you would give a shout out to? I talked a little bit about how Emmett Till is being remembered in the Mississippi Delta and beyond. And the website is down, but it'll be back up soon. Um, it's called the Emmett Till Memory Project. And we did it with Google, who then in turn gave it to Niantic Labs. Uh, this was 2015. And the project goes like this. The, so the, the app, it's on your phone. You can download it for free. It's called Field Trip with Niantic Labs, uh, the maker of Pokemon Go, I think. So a lot of people know about Niantic. And uh, if, you go to the, if you go to the app and download their Field Trip app, you will see under their history uh, link, uh, the Emmett Till Memory Project. The way it works is we wanted, we wanted to help educate a whole new generation who are getting their stuff through their smartphones. And the way this works is if you, you have the, the right things enabled on your phone, when you get within a certain uh, radius of certain places, your, your phone will ping you and tell you, oh, over here is Moses Wright's house, or this is the Sumner Courthouse. And then there's small essays, about four or 500 word essays, and then there's photographs. And so we thought, let's go get kids, K-12 kids, where they live, which is in their phones, and um, let's begin educating because they're not all going to go pick up Devery Anderson's great book. In fact, most of them aren't. So how do you get them? Well, you get them digitally. You get them hooked through the phone. You get them hooked through telling really good punchy story short ones with great pictures. So the Emmett Till Memory Project, uh, it's under tillmemoryproject.com. And again, that, that link is down right now, but it'll be back up soon. Has been a really fun project because a lot of people have been going to the Delta to do this Emmett Till tourism. And that tourism is going to explode when the Till movie, the Hollywood movie comes out. That's coming. You say, when is it coming? Soon. I don't know specifics, but it's coming. Finally, we're going to have a movie. And that's going to drive a lot of people into the Delta to kind of see, okay, where did this story take place? I want to see it. Very, very interesting stuff. Well, Davis, thanks for sitting down and kind of talking through this a lot. It's been my pleasure. And uh, definitely look forward to checking the site out when it's back up and definitely given me a lot to digest. And wander over to Special Collections at some point here at FSU. The, it's open to the public. It's, you know, you don't even have to make an appointment. Um, actually, you might if you're not an FSU student just to get in the front door. But yeah, I mean, the whole point is to share that collection with people who have an interest in the case. And uh, the, folks over, the folks over there are just really, really helpful. And they've done a great job organizing and, and making it accessible to the public. Sounds good. Yeah. That's all for today. Feel free to follow us on social media at Key People Podcast or at keypeoplepodcast.com.